UK nationals are always in the top top five, usually top three nationalities of victims that found in the UK. When it comes to kids, top number one every single time. In victims of trafficking, you are dealing with people that have met the very worst of humanity. But we hope in their encounter with Unseen, they meet the very best of humanity. This is at least a half a trillion dollar profit industry that we're talking about. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Now, you know I care about human trafficking, child slave labor, forced exploitation. You know those things matter to me. Today's guest, Andrew Wallace, OBE, the founder of Unseen, a 15-year-old charity that focuses on forced labor and how we, as a race of people, the human race, can solve this problem. Now, you're going to hear some hard-hitting numbers. You're going to hear about stuff that maybe will make you feel uncomfortable. But we're sharing this information with you because we need you to take action. Unless we can really prod you and poke you, maybe you won't do that. So please stay tuned for this. Maybe make some notes when you hear what you're going to hear. And please respond to it, because together we can solve this problem. But alone, it's a big challenge. Cue the music. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Well, I'm glad that I've got you on the show. I really appreciate your time. I'm really grateful to be here. Looking forward to it. Now, there's a subject that's very close to both of our hearts Mm -hmm. that I want to spend time talking to you about today. First of all, I'd like you to tell me a bit about Unseen and then I'd like you to tell me about how you got involved in an organization like that in the first place. So Unseen is an anti-slavery charity based in the UK. We do six main things. So we work with victims that are identified in the United Kingdom. So we've helped about 750 individuals so far. We have currently in our service about 300 clients. Um, Some of them have been sort of stuck in the service because of a variety of reasons for a number of years. We then work with all what we call the statutory agencies, so police, uh, everything from our national crime agency down to the local force, to border force, to health, to local government. Um, fire, etc. Uh, training them, uh, doing joint operations with them. Uh, then we work with a growing number of businesses, so from huge multinationals down to SMEs, helping them tackle forced labour in their supply chains and how to comply with the growing 
uh, body of legislation that is building up um, around the globe in terms of saying modern slavery is not a good thing. Um, you need to tackle it. We then have a policy and research team that takes all of our data and works with academic institutions to try and understand and get under the hood of, of what's really going on. We run the UK's Modern Slavery Helpline. That's a 24-7, 365 operation that takes calls from the public, from victims, from police, nurses, doctors. Um, and then we take, if you like, all of that sort of frontline information and try and work with governments to try and advise them how to legislate well, how to do policy well, and how to um, create a robust society that is working against modern slavery. So we do that on a Monday, and then we take the rest of the week off. Um, <laughs> how did I get into it? Well, I founded it. So um, I started it because I came across the issue um, in a former life. So my background is I went to university, then I worked uh, in retail management um, and then into consultancy and then a complete switcheroo. I ended up working for a church for a bit, went back into retail management uh, alongside working for a church. That was a technique called bivocational. Um, and whilst working for a church, a colleague of mine went out to the Ukraine, topical. Um, this is 2007. Um, and he was there. And he stopped someone being trafficked. And he, he ended up having to buy this girl off the trafficker to keep her safe. Um, and she went home, but uh, unbeknownst to him that the local police at that time were also involved in the trafficking racket and they came back to try and extort more money from him and, and colleagues. So they had to leave town. So that kind of like Wild West story came back. And, and that was probably the first time that I was consciously aware of something that was called human trafficking. Uh, I think I remember a sort of there was a documentary on Channel Four called Sex Trafficking, but it it didn't really register. You know, it was a thriller. Okay, fine. Um, and at the same time, another friend of mine was also working in Ukraine, uh, trying to tackle the social orphan problem. Uh, and she was a teacher, and she used to go out every summer and work in these orphanages um, in her summer holidays. And she came back distraught and said, look, everything that we're doing is really not worth it because when these kids get turfed out at 16, the people that are at the gates to meet them are the traffickers and they get in the back of the car and they disappear and they're, and they're never seen again. And this was, you know, in the, in the 90s, uh, and this is the advantage of looking back, but something like 400,000 Ukrainian, predominantly women and children, disappeared and disappeared into trafficking situations all over the globe. And so that just sparked my interest it's like okay hang on i've got this story about a woman being trafficked and this story about kids being trafficked yes it's in ukraine and then and i've never been able to find the article since i read an article it may have been a mythical article but i read this article that talked about trafficking from eastern europe to the u.s where they would traffic people through the regional airports in the uk and across europe and this is pre uh 9-11 they used the regional airports to avoid the hub airports and avoid detection um, and one of the airports that was named was Bristol Airport, which is the city in which I live. And I just, in my brain, I put three things together and got problem. And because we were doing a lot of social justice work in the city, I just did what I thought was normal. I wrote to every single MP in the city, every single councillor and the chief constable and said, OK, I've come across this thing called human trafficking. Here's this article that links Bristol to it and Eastern Europe. Is there a problem? What can we do about it? How can we help? Um, and that led to a senior police officer calling me out of the blue, inviting himself to coffee. And you can't really turn down a senior police officer that invites himself to coffee. And he came and we had this four-hour conversation which lifted a lid, not just on the city, but on the UK. 
And at the end of it, he said, look, if, if what you wanted to do was write a letter that would get lots of people flapping around trying to answer your questions, then you've achieved that because they didn't really know the answers to your questions and, and what to do. Um, and he said, look, any idiot can write a letter and you can retire happy on that if that's what you want to do. But he said, what are you actually going to do about this issue now that you know about it? And I said, stupidly at the time, I just said, what do you need? And he said, well, I need safe housing because at the moment all I can do is I can kick the door in, and remember it's about sex trafficking then, on residential properties that are being used as brothels. We arrest the victims, i.e. the women. That's the only way that we can get them out. We stick them in a hotel and B&B overnight to try and keep them safe, but they disappear overnight. We know they go straight back to their traffickers in another part of the country. The trail goes cold. I can't, as a police officer, get the bad guys, and I feel awful that these women are just continually exploited. So I need somewhere that, where they are safe and where they're helped and they're supported. And without thinking, I said, okay, I'll do that on one condition. You're my first trustee. And he agreed. So that was literally how Unseen started. And then this friend of mine, Kate, who was this teacher, uh, shortly after came and said, look, I'm done with teaching. I'm really cut up about this issue of kids being trafficked. Um, you know, I want to do something about it. I said, okay, well, look, we're starting this thing. Do you want to do it with us? And so that that's how it started. Um, and I didn't, I really didn't know what trafficking was to any extent. I had no idea what a safe house was. Um, all I knew was there was something within me that just said, this is wrong at every single level. This is wrong. Um, and I need to do something about it. Wow. Tell me about the kind of like some of the horrors that really kind of took you to a, from a level of, I need to do something about it to some more urgency or issues that really, really thrust. Cause I, I had an experience and it was like a, almost like a turning moment. Yeah. It was a turning moment where I went, I need to now act right now, 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 now. And then I kind of ac accelerated through into that. Was there a moment like that for you? I think there were there were two. One, which was when we were thinking about, okay, what are we going to do? I mean, it, you know, it's that you make that decision in the spur of the moment, and then you go, oh crap, <laughs> I've actually got to do something about this now. Um, and we we sat down. We said, look, we don't want to create a charity that's just going to create, in effect, like a safety net, because that that's accepting that bad things happen. And okay, it's a very nice safety net. And it's, you know, it's guilt edged and everything else, but bad things are still happening. So from literally from the get go, we said, look, well, we want to meet that's immediately meet the need that's immediately in front of us, but we want to actually turn the tap off. That was our parlance. You know, how, and how do we turn that tap off? Uh, and this police officer who, because he was senior enough, he was able to get me into the home office and get me into what was then the serious uh, organized crime agency, which is now the NCA. And the pivotal moment for me was going, I was invited to a meeting in Birmingham at the Serious Organised Crime Agency. And it was just a shouting match. It's in the room you had um, home office and police and border force and third sector organisations and concerned individuals. And it was, it, I mean, it was just a full on shout, shouting match. And I came away from going, this is hopeless. You know, it's like everybody has lost sight of what we're trying to achieve. And in the midst of this are victims, you know, whose lives have been absolutely shattered. And so I just said, okay, that, that's got to be addressed. 
And the other thing was very early on, I had the, the privilege of uh, going on a joint operation with the police. Uh, and it was a raid in Cambridgeshire and they were raiding a farm where they knew there was forced labour exploitation taking place. And they wanted people from NGOs to be on there to work with the victims when they were found to reassure them that they weren't in trouble, that they were going to be safe and everything else. So, I mean, it's, I don't know why these raids are always at unearthly hours. You know, 5 a.m. in the morning, bleary-eyed, the raid takes place. We're in the reception centre. And they pulled dozens of people off the field and, and brought them back to this reception centre. And it is, you know, it's feeding them, it's coffee, it's just sitting with them, reassuring them, often through interpreters, you're okay and everything else. Um, and the police had, at the same time, simultaneously, they'd arrested all of the exploiters. And what was happening was these people were uh, under the control of a gang master. They were forced to work on the farm. The farmer was oblivious to the exploitation that was taking place. So he was paying them legitimately through the backs, he was paying all the taxes and everything else. What he didn't know was that these individuals were in tied accommodation where the rent each week was more than they could earn, that they were also charged for absolutely everything. So they were getting further and further into debt to the point that they then took over control of their bank accounts and then used the bank accounts to not only take their money but also money launder, the, the other criminal activity that was going on. We spent... I remember, you know, it started at 5 a.m. It wasn't until about 5 p.m., so 12 hours later, that one of them, out of the dozens, had the courage to say, yeah, we're being exploited. And, and that was the thing that unlocked it in terms of then everybody else came forward and all of that. But the thing that struck me the most was there was a guy called, and I'll call him Robert, and I always call him Robert, but and that <laughs> wasn't his real name, but it's Robert in my mind now. He was six foot six, and he was built like a brick house. I mean, I used to play rugby. I would not want to to be on the same pitch as him because he, mm -hmm. would, have, he would have hurt me when I got tackled. It doesn't matter where he's at. And yet he was petrified. And I thought, what is it that happens to somebody that, you know, with that physique that is petrified? And he was petrified for his family at home uh, that the traffickers would go after them. Mm. And even though we could reassure him, no, they've been arrested, they're not going to go after him. And no, you're not going to lose your job and you're not going to be deported. You're going to get your job back. You're going to get a new bank account. All the money that, uh, you know, that's been stolen from you will be returned to you and all of that. He was petrified. And my abiding memory was, and this must have been about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night when we left. We, and they had been reaccommodated as well. So new house, new bank account, same job, money returned, assured that, um, you know, the, the traffickers weren't going to get him. Him standing in the doorway looking at me absolutely petrified and saying, can you reassure me that I'm safe? And I, I, you know, I could reassure him that he was safe, but I walked away going, that is the impact on an individual that gets trafficked. And no, it, you know, he hadn't been brutalised and I've witnessed some horrific things since. He hadn't been brutalised, but at that psychological level, he'd been broken and he was absolutely shattered and he was in fear for his life and his family's life. Mm. The, the decisions that these people make that t takes them down this road obviously come from a desperate place to start with. When we look at trafficking within the UK, what nationalities are predominantly trafficked here? Um, 
currently, um, according to the NRM statistics, Albanians, Romanians, Vietnamese, Chinese, and Brits. Those are your top five. Albanians, Romanians, Vietnamese, Chinese, and Brits. Yeah. But we find every year approximately 100 hundred plus different nationalities in the UK that have been trafficked. Oh, sure. You said Brits. Yeah. What do you mean by that? As in UK nationals, as in living in this country, but in situations of modern slavery. Okay, explain that to us. So the people, people in the UAE where I'm from and the podcast is listened to won't understand that people in their own country are trafficked. And so it will be the same in the UAE as well. It's the same in every single country. So when I paint a picture of the UK, you can transpose it into every single country. So this is UK nationals that are are forced into either forced labour, sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, forced criminality, um, and, and, and wider. We haven't seen UK nationals yet on this, but I'm sure it is happening, um, organ trafficking. So look, look, let me break it down. When I talk about modern slavery, it's, it's not a legal term. It's, it's an overarching term that the UK came up, came up with, with the Modern Slavery Act. But the way to understand it is modern slavery is um, it's an illicit commodity trade. And your commodity is a human being. And that human being is bought, sold and exploited through means of deception and coercion and force for the sole purposes and the only purpose of making money for their exploiter. And around the, you know, if you look around the globe, that holds true every, everywhere. And why wouldn't you get into this trade? Because you've got a less than 1% chance of ever getting caught and prosecuted for this crime. Less than 1%. Wow. Trade-wise, it's a trade that's worth at least profit, not turnover, profit, Half a trillion dollars globally per annum. Incredible. I think that people don't don't realise. I think when they understand, like the drug industry, you know, they, to me, it's like a, a, cocaine has to be produced and then it's sold and then it's consumed. But and it's pe- a one-hit wonder. That's right. And people are sold over and over again. Yeah, it's repeat business. And what, I, I've met, um, we call them clients, but I've met victims or survivors you know, who were in forced labor exploitation during the day mm-hmm. and then forced sexual exploitation during the, the night. I mean, literally almost worked 24-7. Wow. And, and why wouldn't you? you? You want to maximize your profits. The, the ringleaders typically are from which countries? Um, we, so we run the Modern Slavery Helpline and so we look at what the, the match between perpetrator and victim um, and often it is, you know, uh, Vietnamese victim, Vietnamese perpetrator. Yeah. Um, but it, th- that doesn't hold true in- entirely. Um, so, um, so you can say there's a direct sort of nationality correlation, but then you have organized criminal gangs that really don't give a rip. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've got a commodity, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use it. Um, and so it could be British OCGs. It, it could be, um, say, we're around cannabis cultivation. We, we've seen this trend over the last 10 years where initially it was Vietnamese organized criminal gangs. Then British organized criminal gangs g- got involved and now it's Albanian organized criminal gangs involved. Um, but the Vietnamese haven't stopped and the Brits haven't stopped. It's just that the Albanians are to the fore at the moment in that particular trade. 
Um, and by cannabis cultivation, that is somebody locked in a grow house, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's an industrial unit um, or a, a, you know, a residential house. Um, or my favorite one is they took over a former nuclear bunker in the middle of the countryside and took the power off the national grid. And then this vast complex of, of cannabis growing operation. Crazy. The Albanians seem to come up in most conversations nowadays about yeah. anything related to, to crime. Um, and is it, is, it, is it that predominant? Because it's such a small country. When you actually look at it, the population's tiny. It's, it's just focus. Okay. So it, it's that, you know, when you, when you look for it, you find it. The, currently the focus is on that. If we were having this conversation five years ago, we'd be talking about uh, you know, top nationalities, one being Nigerian. Um, uh, then Latvian, Lith- Lithuanian. So it just, it constantly Devolved. moves and, and, and changes. Last year, um, 2022, we've just published an an- our annual assessment from, from the helpline and we've suddenly seen a, a massive spike in Indian nationals and um, African nationals from uh, East Africa. So Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, mm-hmm. um, Ethiopia, uh, coming up into the UK, into the care sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for your listeners in, uh, in the Gulf States, you know, there's a massive flow of people from East Africa to the Gulf States. Mm-hmm. It, um, often then get caught up in issues of domestic servitude and forced labor. So it, it, it doesn't really mind where you come from. It's are you vulnerable enough so that we can, we can mm-hmm. exploit you and, and go <clears> after you? In, uh, I interviewed somebody from Homeland Security in the States and they said that in the United States every year 500,000 young people go missing. Yeah. 75% of them are from the foster care system but they go missing never to be found again. And when I was given that number, that really, it, it really scared me. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean? What, half a million children go missing? And they're like, yeah. And well, never found. And I think that, you know, if, if you're listening to this or watching this right now, understanding that number on its own in a country that's regarded as being the wealthiest country and or one of the wealthiest countries, the first world, blah, 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 that taking place at that greater number, God only knows what happens. Organ harvesting is big in China. Organ harvesting is big in Egypt as well. And so you see these, these large numbers of people that are going through that process. What is it, what are the numbers here in the UK? Give me give me some data around around how how much of this is taking place. What what does it mean? So the Global Slavery Index, uh, which is produced by an organisation called Walk Free in conjunction with the ILO, the International Labour Organisation, they just published figures two weeks ago, uh, and they said at any one time in the UK. And whenever we talk figures as well, you're, what you're trying to quantify is something that is a hidden crime. So I think the numbers are always conservative, so they're always going to be north of of whatever those figures are, but the figures are really scary. So in the UK, we're talking about 122,000 people at any one time held in situations of modern slavery. The Home Office calculated, and this was nearly 10 years ago, so I've I've upped it for inflation. It costs the UK, UK PLC, for every victim that we find or are aware of, circa 400,000 pounds so you can do the maths so this is costing every year the uk 40 to 45 billion pounds that's the cost okay for the sake of everybody let's just go through those numbers again so i want everyone to really understand it do that again so 100 at any one time in the uk walk free now estimate there are at least 122,000 victims at any one time in the uk today today right 
122,000 people at least. That's a conservative number, but let's just go with that number. About 10 years ago, the Home Office tried to quantify what's the cost to the UK mm-hmm. of a victim. Mm-hmm. That cost could be policing time, health support, et cetera, et cetera. They said it is circa £400,000 per victim. 400000 times 122000 gives you somewhere mm-hmm. £45 billion pounds per what, year. Per year. That's a lot of hospitals. A lot of money. That's a, yeah. Which is why, if that's true for the UK, I gave you that earlier figure of saying, this is at least a half a trillion dollar profit industry that mm-hmm. we're talking about. And last year, collectively around the globe, we spent about $380 million fighting this crime. So it's an unfair fight on every Mm. single level. And that's before you get into individuals whose lives have been absolutely shattered by this. I'm I'm one of these people that believes in kindness. And I believe that most people are kind. And I truly believe that if everybody, everybody was just to spend time being kind to one person, so that could be an old lady, a widow that sits on her own in her in a in a residential flat that doesn't really have much company that that you go and visit once a week and you have a cup of tea with her and you take her some biscuits and just chat to her for an hour or so. Um, I do it with the guy that's that, that that's homeless that's always in the same alleyway that's always trying to look for a bit of extra cash and I just go and be kind to him. If we were all to do that, the world would be a much 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 better place for a number of reasons. And one of them with regards to trafficking is I think that we'd know much more and people would have the courage to talk. And the reason I say that is in my documentary, Lena from Bulgaria, when she was trafficked from Bulgaria to Amsterdam, she didn't trust the Bulgarian police. She goes to Amsterdam. Police is police. So she doesn't talk because the Dutch police, she doesn't trust because of her own experience in Bulgaria. And so because of that, she doesn't go to the police. It took somebody else to take her to the police to to get the kind of wheels in motion and the alarm bells ringing. People are living in fear. And that fear is threats to family and everything else that goes with it. Do you sometimes feel with the organisation that you have that it's just too big? That's a great question. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's not possible to deal with it. And so I'm a huge believer in dealing with what is immediately in front of you, that act of kindness. And I think, let me sort of stretch that point out further, because if, if you're a victim of this crime, you, you've lost your voice, whether that's through fear or intimidation, um, or fear of the police, you have no voice. So actually you need people to be kind, to be eyes and ears for you and to speak up for you. Um, and that's part of the motivation f- for the helpline. I said it, why we set the helpline up was so that members of the public could go, you know, I, I meet that person that's begging down my street and I give them a coffee and everything else. And then just once I just stayed and watched and, that person, another person came up and took all their money and they seemed to hand it over willingly and then gave them a kick and then they carry on begging and everything. That doesn't seem right. And we would say, well, call that in. You know, 
you've seen something say something because you might have just witnessed what we would now term modern slavery. Or you're at work and you're around the water cooler and there's somebody there that it's almost like the absence of normal. You know, what did you do the weekend? Nothing. Or what did you do last night? Nothing. Um, doesn't engage in everything else. And that person could be the, under the control of somebody else. Um, so it's, it's eyes open and ears open to, to the world that you live in and, and understanding the indicators of, of what modern slavery looks like. You know, they're not dressed appropriate for the job or they don't have access to their papers or they seem completely withdrawn or they seem under the control of another individual. It's those little things that are actually just that gut feeling of something doesn't add up here. It, it's not right. And an act of kindness is, especially here in the UK, is get over your British reserve and just say something because you may have the final piece of the jigsaw that allows the police to get that person out of that situation. You may have un uncovered things. I remember, you know, we had one call that ultimately led to 276 people being found one call that, that led to that. That's, that call is an act of kindness uh, on behalf of 276 people that had no opportunity to make that call. So uh, I think that's the immediate in front of you. In terms of like, is it a massively overwhelming problem? Well, world leaders came together and said, look, we're going to create these things called the Social Development Goals, the SDGs. SDG 8.7 says we'll, we'll eradicate slavery by 2030. We haven't got a hope of doing that by 2030 because we haven't, A, owned up to the scale of the problem and we're not properly resourcing it. And we haven't tackled the systemic issues, i.e. what causes slavery. My hypothesis is it is a demand for cheap services, cheap goods and cheap labour that is met by an endless supply of vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. So the only way that we can stop this is to simultaneously address the demand issues as well as addressing the vulnerability issues. And, you know, everyone's talking about climate at the moment and, and climate, you know, scares my kids and it scares me, but it, it scares me because even if we hit our 1.5 degree target of global warming, which <coughs> we're not, that means about a third of the world's population is going to move. Mm -hmm. So we're just creating vulnerability. Mass movement of people just creates vulnerability. You know, whenever there's a natural disaster or there's a war or there's a conflict or whatever, do you know the first people on the scene? Traffickers. Every single time. They go, because we've got vulnerable people and we can, we can pull them in. And why are they doing that? Because it's just so profitable. But can we do it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it absolutely drives me. The mission statement of Unseen is to put ourselves out of business. So whenever anyone joins Unseen, I say, you've, you've just made a really wise career move because we're trying to kill the business. Hmm. Um, and yet we're here 15 years, you know, we're, we're dealing with more every single day. But we have to have that mindset that we, that we can do this. And, and we, we want to do it with everybody. And it's about this whole society response. It's saying to politicians, you've got your bit to do. It's saying to policing, you've got your bit to do. To businesses, you've got your bit to do. To the third sector, you've got your bit to do. And, and to victims, you know, educate us and lead and help and support us so that we know how to deal with this. Because they know what's happened to them. And, you know, I've not met a survivor that ultimately doesn't want it to happen to anybody else. You know, what, what happened to me was so horrific. I, I want to, you know, either tell you what's happened 
you know, where I came from, how I was recruited, how I was deceived, you know, the, the story that you gave of that, that deception of a boyfriend but then sold into, into sex trafficking, you know. I, I don't want another girl to go through that, so I want to give her the knowledge of these are the things to look out for, this is how you, you take care and, and keep yourself safe. Or I want to say to the consumer, you know, if, if you eat food and you wear clothes and you use consumer electronics, without trying, you're probably connected to 40 or 60 slaves in the world who made those goods for you. Is that how you want to consume? I don't think so. Do you do you think, though, that people are that far removed? I mean, we've seen the, 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 the kids digging for cobalt mm-hmm. uh, on various videos out there, and do you think that as much as it's shocking when people see that, do you think that most people, it's so far removed from a world they know that... And it's easier not to think about it than it is to think about it. Which is why, it, it, and it was interesting, your face, when I said, you know, UK nationals are caught up in this as well. And, um, you know, if we split it, adults and kids, adults are always in the top, UK nationals are always in the top top five, usually top three nationalities of victims that found in the UK. When it comes to kids, top number one, every single time. Um, and that can be through um, what we call county lines, so forced drug running. It can be through sexual exploitation, forced labour, domestic servitude. This is UK kids. And and I think that's the thing that stopped, in the UK stops people in a track. They go, oh, oh, hang on, I thought this was a problem over there or a problem that came here. I said, no, it, it yes, it is all of that, but it's also UK nationals. And like you said, in America, 500,000 US kids go missing every year. 75% never get found. Well, that's every year. And it, the numbers don't go down. And so you have to say it, it's a problem that is global and local, global. Do British kids get sent overseas as well? Yeah, there are examples of that as well. I, th- I think about it and I'm trying to get... Nobody, I don't think anybody in the UK thinks it's British people. I think they've seen on the news the the Polish people and the strawberry farms and you know and the 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 the, the Vietnamese people that were in the back of that truck that that they they were suffocated they're all in there they'll see that kind of stuff and they'll associate it with foreigners. I'm pretty sure most people don't think there's British people. They'll they'll know that there's those kids that were abused in Rotherham and all that kind of stuff because it's in the news. Why? Why is that problem of British kids not being shouted about louder? Why am I not picking that up on social media? Now, I follow human traffic-related charities, organisations. We know how social media works. If, uh, if I talk about it enough, it's only going to feed me more and more of the stuff that I want to consume. Why am I not being told that? I think the two reasons. One is we don't talk about it enough. So, and it, it's, is it a combination of compassion fatigue and it's just too awful, I don't want to think about it and I, I don't want to deal with is it. It's just you say that because I've yeah. had some people with my podcast have said to me over the years, Spence, the subject's too depressing. Yeah. And I'm like, but it's real. It's real and there are some, there are some big wins as well. So, so then, then, then maybe that's, that's the bit we miss. Yeah. We don't. Is we don't champion the successes yeah. in, in a big enough way to encourage us all to create those successes, maybe. Yeah, but it's also how we define success. So, um, yeah, I have 
an incredible privilege that I get to meet survivors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not many people do. And I think the reason that not many people do is that for lots of them, they don't want to be defined as that. That you know, they don't want to be defined as a victim or a survivor or, you know, um, I, I, I was a, a slave or I was trafficked. They, they just want to be defined as you and I would define ourselves. You know, what's your name, what you do and everything else. So I think there's a, there's an unwillingness on behalf of some survivors to, to, to share their stories. But I meet them and, and my colleagues in my frontline team work with them every single day. These are incredible people because they've got the resilience to survive. The absolute worst. Um, and my former chair of trustees used to say, you know, it, in victims of trafficking, you are dealing with people that have met the very worst of humanity. But we hope in their encounter with Unseen, they meet the very best of humanity. Um, and that and the, there's a transformation that, that takes place as a result of that. And we talk about taking people from being a victim to being somebody that is resilient um, and, and able to move on with their lives. They may walk with a limp for the rest of their lives because of what you know has happened to them, but they're resilient. Um, and s- some of the survivors that I know are incredibly resilient, incredibly powerful. Um, and are now starting to lead organizations combating trafficking. You know, they, they've got real skin in the game in terms of these are the things that, that need to happen. But look, go back to 15 years ago when I started Unseen. This was nowhere in the media. There was, there was no coverage. I mean, you know, if, if you think it's sporadic now, it was a desert <laughs> back then. Um, and now it is frequently in the news. And I think it's a bit sort of Chinese water torture. It's drip, drip, drip. And I think more and more people are, are beginning to understand it. And, you know, if we were to go out on the high street and do a vox pop and say, okay, what, tell me what you think modern slavery is. Yeah, you get a few wacky answers and a few cocky answers. But actually most people will go, yeah, it's the exploitation of people around that. Now that societal shift does just take time. In the UK, we've had the Modern Slavery Act in 2015. And I, you know, played an intimate part in that. So I chaired the report that was the catalyst for that legislation to come through. You know, we, we published the report in May, thir- uh, March 13, May 13. I was in the cabinet office with the cabinet and they're going, right, we're going to do an act based on this report. In 2011, I sat in the home office and I said, you know, if we're going to effectively get the UK back to base level, base camp in terms of trying to effectively deal with this, I said, we need primary legislation, we need an independent anti-slavery commissioner, we need a helpline, we need better support for victims, and we need to recognise that children are victims as well. And they went, you're not going to get any of those. Two years later, I stood up in a conference in front of the minister and said, your home office told me two years ago, five no's. I've got five yeses, what's next? And that's, I think, sometimes you've got to just have that attitude of, yeah, you're telling me no, and yeah, you're telling me we can't do this, but we absolutely can. And I think it is about finding uh, initially those motivated individuals that want to do it across the wide spectrum of society. And then you build that momentum and you build it through legislation, you build it through intelligence, you build it through society changing. And here's the thing, I take the lesson from history. You know the transatlantic slave trade? Mm -hmm. In this country, you know, you go transatlantic slave trade and everyone goes, oh, William Wilberforce, blah, 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 blah. Yes, true. But actually what created the space for him to act and bring that legislation forward that outlawed transatlantic safe trade? It was people like you and me. It was consumers going, 
Well, I now know that if I buy sugar, that sugar only exists because slaves will have made it. I ain't buying it. And that brought the sugar barons to their knees and it created the space for the politics to happen. And it was, you know, it was that awareness and it, there was, camp, you know, Josiah Wedgwood and, and all these other things, you know, they created these potteries with, that highlighted what slavery was to the point that the pub went, oh, I get it. I, I understand the linkage. And so, you know, I understand that UK nationals can get caught up in this. I understand that it's a problem that's around the globe. I understand it is about, some of it is my own personal volition. Um, and look, I'm a poacher term gamekeeper. You know, I used to work in retail. And so when I talk about the demand for cheap, you know, whenever I'm in front of businesses, I go, okay, let's have an honest conversation here. Who educated whom around cheap? Because it wasn't the consumer. And so, you know, these big societal shifts, these systemic changes are, are going to take time. But you could go, okay, it's, it's too big. It's too scary. Yeah, but you don't get to the top unless you get over that fear. And then you say, right, we're going to the top. Mm. And I'm wired strange. So tell me, who inspires you? What examples have you got of other people that are doing great work that make you go, it's worth it? I've never been asked that question. Um, two people. One is um, a Jewish rabbi, or, I mean, revered by the three mon uh, monotheistic faiths, Jesus and Nazareth. In terms of, and I, I, by accident, I ended up studying theology at university. And, and I only did it because I, I muffed up my A-levels and I couldn't, couldn't be asked to raise it. <laughs> I just said, right, I'm going on clearing. And I ended up uh, doing a different degree and then switched to theology and, and had a whale of a time. But loved it. But what captivated, captivated me was um, a Catholic priest called Oscar Romero, who was a bishop in El Salvador in the 70s and 80s and he stood up to um, the Contras and you know, everything that was going on at that time and he said this and he preached this in El Salvador Cathedral and he said whenever I feed the poor and I take care of the homeless uh, and I look after you know society's ills and, and, and the destitute he said you I the congregation and wider the government you praise me but if i ask why then you want to kill me and he was assassinated by the government for asking why and i find that incredibly uh jolting that that can happen um but i i, I did this course course called religion society and politics and, and look looked at the way that those that ha had faith interpreted it in trying to improve the world in which they lived and they didn't see it about their personal advancement they saw it about actually we have a responsibility to bring justice uh and, and bring social justice and so people like uh desmond tutu nelson mandela oscar romero uh, and others are my heroes in terms of looking at the world around them and going, 
that's not right and there is something I can do. I can give coffee to the homeless person. But what captivate, captivates me is asking the why. And to bring it back to um, Jesus of Nazareth, I think I just see someone there that um, encapsulated what it means to be about social justice, that was prepared to speak up to the authorities to the point that he got killed, who was prepared to... Um, there's a, you know, there's a shocking story where he has this encounter with someone with leprosy. And we, we don't understand that just how shocking that was to a first century individual reading that story. Because he was someone that was completely unclean, completely ostracized from society, that you would have not just crossed the road, you'd have gone right around the outskirts of the town to avoid. And yet you have someone that's prepared to cross the road and take hold of the hand of something like that and restore them in a society where being ostracized meant, you know, absolute devastation for that individual. Those are the, you know, and so when I see people that are prepared to do that, those, those are my heroes and most of them are unsung and, and aren't met. I'm, and I'm not going like, you know, I've got my sporting heroes. I love Liverpool Football Club, even though I was born in Leeds and, you know, there's those but actually it's those people that, that want to change the world. And often they do it without drawing attention to themselves, mm -hmm. and, and that I find captivating. Talk to me about what a trafficker looks like and how you would spot one. Oh, sorry, I lost that again. Talk to me about what a trafficker looks like and how you would spot one. In some ways, like you and me. I, I mean, they're, they're people... And I think, you know, when No, we, they, must, they must have, like, yeah. like, leather jackets on. They must kind of, like, be burly kind of characters walking around with a machete inside their jacket, maybe a submachine gun, a, yeah. you know, Glock. What are they, these guys? They must be like that, surely. No. So, you know, back to your story of that woman that got sold into sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. Her boyfriend didn't look like that. Mm. Her boyfriend swept her off her feet. He said, oh, you're... The, the most beautiful person I know and I love you and I adore you and shout her with gifts. And then let's, let's go on a holiday. Let's go here. Let's travel to here. And you, they cross the border. I, let me look after your passport. I'll keep it safe while we're on this trip and all that. And then they get to the hotel and then the trap. So no, they, they look like you and me. And that's, you know, they are very adept at preying on vulnerable people. And they will come in all shapes and sizes. You know, there's, I remember one case. So this was in Rotherham. And it was what we call a mom and pop operation. So in, in Rotherham, uh, sorry, Rochdale. Um, peace was Rotherham, Rochdale. Uh, there was a father and son that, that ran a business. The recruiter was their grandmother in a village in Romania. And she would recruit the local girls and saying, oh, my son, look at these pictures, how successful he is in the UK. He's, he's got some jobs. You know, if you just go, we'll arrange it all, the flight and everything else. And you're in abject poverty and there's no options. Of course you'll go. It's, it's grandma, you know. They would fly there and then they were sold into the sex trade. And then, yes, there are organised criminal gangs. And the level of sophistication is huge. And they have this ability to move their commodity human beings around the globe. You know, back to how I first sort of joined the dots, was reading this report of yeah. 
um, criminals being able to move someone from Eastern Europe to the States and avoid detection. Um, so a huge level of sophistication. I remember being in, in a conference and someone was talking about trafficking from India to the US. And, and they said, you know, traffickers are super smart. They, they use the best of technology and they're so well resourced. Um, but they also know how to evade detection. And so they will do things, you know, that are analog in a digital world in, in order to avoid detection. But they said an order can be placed on the west coast of the US. I want a woman, these measurements, these characteristics. And they literally have holding pens in India. And they can move. And it's almost like DHL in 24 hours. That woman is in sexual exploitation in the US. It's that level of organized criminality that, that's going on and, and all points in between. It's domestic abuse. You know, I remember we had one call on the helpline where somebody called us and said, this is the only opportunity I've got. You have to get me out now. And because we're so plugged into the police forces, we got them out within 15 minutes of that call coming through. And they you know, had for years been this domestic servitude. And you probably walked past them in the park when they were looking after the kids. Uh, they were shopping in the supermarket. You know, they were doing everything, but they were never paid. And there were fringe benefits on the side for the husband. Wow. There's hope, but it's almost like I'm scared. I'm scared because, you know, I wanted to make this documentary because I wanted to bring people's attention to it. And that every opportunity I get, I talk about it. And I've been able to get Maria on stages at... The, the conferences in Las Vegas to Nas Daily's stuff in Dubai where she can share this story and tell people how these kids have suffered and what she's done to help. But I want, I want there to be more. If it's such a big industry, what more if we built out a strategy? If you and I, you know, I, I had a flip chart, okay, you, you, I'm going to write down whatever you say. Let's build out this plan. We're going to present it to the government because the government have asked us. All right, they said, now, whatever you say we're going to do, where would we start to solve the problem once and for all? And, and, and do we really know how to solve it? Let's get the flip chart out. So you break it down. Like, how do you eat an elephant bit by bit? So you, you break it down. Um, but at the end of the day, you're still trying to eat an elephant. So that's the scale of the problem. Um the biggest proportion of people that are held in situations of slavery around the globe today are in what we call situations of forced labor, either in the world's supply chains. Mm -hmm. That means corporates have a role and responsibility around that. So when the Modern Slavery Act, sorry, the Modern Slavery Bill was being run here in the UK, the one thing that Unseen led on was ensuring that what's now known as Section 54, Transparency and Supply Chains legislation, got into that, that act. And that required companies to start talking about what are you doing to tackle modern slavery? Um, in eight years, that legislation has gone around the globe um, and it's building up. So now we have legislation at a European level that says, that's called mandatory human rights due diligence. In other words, you business at the top of the supply chain, you need to know A, where your supply chain is going and you need to ensure that there is no exploitation taking place in your supply chain. Mm -hmm. So legislation is the bit, legislation defines how we do business. Yeah. But then businesses need to change. And you know, we're, we're all, everybody's now talking about sustainability when it comes to climate, but we don't talk about sustainability when it comes to people. 
And again, you know, I know from having worked in the business, you know, when it comes to procurement, what are people incentivized on when it comes to procurement? Profit. Profit over absolutely everything else. It is like, oh, I've got all the aces up my sleeve and we're playing poker and you're going to lose every time because I'm just going to go bang. We need to change that because actually our profit model is one of extractive profit. How much can profit can I extract? I would say it's extortionate profit. We need to switch to a sustainable profit model that says there are ways that we can do business that don't both wreck the planet and destroy people. And yes, businesses, you have a real role and critical response in doing that. Then we need to re-educate the consumer. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't need 500 T-shirts for a summer, mm-hmm. you know, that I would wear once and throw away. Mm-hmm. But we've educated people around fast fashion. We've educated people around disposability. And we have taken away the value equation, which is do I value things? And uh, you know, I've been in factories where shirts and everything else have been made, and, and they're good factories. And I go, Flip, I would not want to work in there, <laughs> you know, every single day. They're hot, they're noisy, they're hard work. And at the same time, super skilled, you know, to, to do that. So, I, you know, I, do I value this? Do I value the things that I consume? And, and that's what I mean. It's like going, you know, we were talking earlier about going up Everest. It's going, okay, that's Everest. How do we chunk it up? How are we going to go up there? You know, where's base camp? Where's camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four? And then we go for the summit. So that, that's that. We have to address the fact that there's a demand for this. We have to confront people with, you know, if, if you want to consume like this, if you want cheap labor, if you want cheap goods, if you want cheap services, there's a cost in all of this. Um, and, and we need to build a different model which says, you know, we can do business and, and not screw people and not screw planet. We, we need to talk about drugs. You know, in, in the UK, most kids that are caught in modern slavery now are being forced to run drugs. Is our policy on drugs working? The, the war on drugs? Well, we're losing. What's the definition of madness? We keep doing the same thing and expecting different results and mm-hmm. not getting different results. So let's have those conversations. When it comes to trafficking for sexual exploitation, why do, and it is predominantly, why do men buy sex? What, how are we educating men? You know, and you know, this whole thing of gender equality and, and everything else that is in the narrative we're not having an honest conversation with kids around how do we respect one another as, as human beings mm-hmm. so that actually, why would I want to buy sex? Mm-hmm. And it's not an instant fix. It's, it's, it's a societal fix. And everyone goes, goes, oh, it's not impossible. And everybody puts every objection in the way. And I love it when they do that because I just go, right, I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. But it's a bit like, you know, in this country, in, this, in the 70s, um, you're not old enough to remember this, but, you know, the hoo-ha over wearing a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this mass campaign over, like, there's no way I'm wearing a seatbelt, blah, 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 blah. If you, if you go out now and ask somebody, just, just describe to me what you do when you get in a car and drive away. They never mention putting on a seatbelt, but they all put on a seatbelt. It's like this great sort of um, personal liberty that we're taking away from people and everyone drive and you don't even think about it anymore. And there was that whole sort of behavioral insight stuff that needed to happen to just change the way that people think. And, and then you need to keep doing what you're doing is you need to make more and more documentaries and put more and more people on platforms in front of people around the globe and just making people aware of what is hidden in plain sight or, as we say, what's unseen. Make people see it. Because when you see it, you're 
touch enough people's lives that they'll go, I want to do something about that as well, because that ain't right. Because the harsh reality is it's somebody's son, daughter, mother, father, uncle, aunt, niece, nephew that is caught up in this. They aren't just 50 million. They're people with lives and with hopes and dreams and aspirations. And because we've done nothing about it, we've ripped that away from them. And then, yes, I, my organization, along with many others around the world, has the privilege of helping those individuals. But I want to shut my organization. My organization should not need to exist in the 21st century. And so actually it's a, it's a damning indictment on society that it has to exist, but it's also a massive motivator in, in us doing things. So just to summarize here, every town, every city in the UK, every one of them, there will be examples of forced labor, sexual exploitation um, and trafficking. Mm-hmm. In every town. So whether you're in London as we are right now, if yeah. you're in Coventry, Nuneaton, Truro, Land's End, Penzance, if you're in Edinburgh, if you're in Scarborough, it's taking place. Yep. Under your nose. So every one of you that's listening right now, under your nose, it's taking place. That's the first thing you've got to be aware of. You've got to understand it's taking place and not to hide away from anything that can lead you to learn more about it. Yep. There are stories of people that have been through unimaginable experiences but come out the other side, okay, and found hope and found faith because of it. You could help them. Yeah. And I believe it's a people movement thing. Yeah. Okay. Unseen as a charity has been going for how long? 15 years. 15 years. How many people have you got helping you? Uh, We have about 100 staff. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're one of the bigger organizations. If everyone went out today and, and that's listening to this podcast and put $50 into your charity, let's say that's 10,000 people that will listen yeah. to this, $50, what could you do with that money? That'd be transformative. Transformative? Yeah. What would you do with it? Explain so that this audience can understand. What, what, what difference would it make? How many lives could you save? So our big push... and is this, which is how do we prevent this in the first place? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to open any more safe houses. I don't want to deal with any more people in our outreach services because that's admitting failure. And it's important. So now is I want to understand in detail what's happened. I, I want to get to the data so that I can talk with government and say, you know, when like, okay, Scunthorpe, I want to be able to talk to Scunthorpe police and the government and local MPs and say, because of the data we've got from the helpline and because we understand from what victims have told us, this if you're going to go and look anywhere, these are your top priority places to go and look. Go and look there. Go and find those places. I want to then work really well with those victims that have been found, support them really well, despite all the rhetoric that's going on in my country at the moment, because I know that they're more likely to engage with the police and, and give them the information. They're more likely to go forward in the criminal justice system, which is slow and ponderous at this country and the best in this country at the best of times but support them every single step of the way so that we then lock up the bad people i i want to train the judiciary so that they use the full weight of the law you know under the modern slavery act we said this is such a monstrous crime that the the tariff is all the way up to life i want to see traffickers put away for life because that's a deterrent i want to see the other provisions that we put in the act and train police to do financial investigations from the get-go so that they seize all of the assets and that money is then 
put back into the fight against trafficking, but it's also used to compensate victims so that they've got an even better chance of, of remaining resilient. And it is about, for me at the moment, it's about data so that we can talk authentically and we can target limited resources because it's always going to be limited to the most effect for the greatest disruption uh, uh, and so that we're, we're prosecuting. Um, we're prosecuting the crime. And I also want to be able to, you know, make more people aware of what's going on. And, and so you build this sort of, this movement, this tsunami of people that's saying enough, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live in this world. You know, you know, I have three Gen Z kids who, you know, you're right. Yes. Dad works in this, so they know about this, but all three of them, care passionately about the world in which they live. And, and they don't want to live in a world where slavery happens. They don't want to live in a world where the environment is absolutely wrecked. And, you know, the, the interplay between those two, you know, is now inextricable. And it is. Look, the, the way that we tackle slavery is a whole of society response. And it is, it's like gearing up that wheel that, that it spins faster and faster and faster and it creates a vortex and it sucks more people in that go, no, we're not having this. And, you know, I want people to write to their MPs and go, what are you doing? You know, we need better, and, and we, you know, we need better laws. We need more support, not less support for victims. You know, we, you know, wherever you are in the world, write to your politicians and say, you know, this is not the world we want to live in. What are you doing? What are your party doing? What's your government doing uh, around this? And, and just create that volume of noise so that politicians, who are usually deaf most of the time, suddenly go, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got to do something about this mm-hmm. now. But I, I need consumers to say to the businesses that they consume from, can you tell me what you're doing to tackle modern slavery? How do you ensure decent work occurs all the way down the supply chain? Can you tell me, are you paying a contextualized living wage all the way down the supply chain? Mm-hmm. Why, are you pay, why are you not paying you know, a reasonable and a responsible wage? There was, there was a study done that said, and, and here's the great myth bust. You know, if, if you... Uh, applied the principles of decent work and you paid a contextualized living wage all the way down the supply chain, everybody goes, everything would be so expensive, we wouldn't be able to afford it. And you're talking about that in a cost of living crisis. And they did a study um, and it put 20 cents on the price of a pair of jeans to do the right thing. 20 cents. 20 cents. That, that's nothing. Mm. What's more exciting is what happens on the ground. So this was an apparel, you know, the apparel industry, this was in Bangladesh. Suddenly... Because you're paying the women, and it is predominantly women, a living wage, guess what? Their kids can go to school for longer. We know education, especially for girls, and especially in that part of the world, is the absolute key for them remaining resilient, not vulnerable, and for economic uplift. And so it's like, well, hang on, why are we doing this? This is like win, 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 win. And, and as a business, you can absorb 20 cents. And as a consumer, we can absorb 20 cents. So what, why don't we do it? It's like the conspiracy of lethargy. And actually, we need, we need a conspiracy of action that actually drives transformative change. I have a story to share with you. I like stories. When I was a financial advisor many years ago in Amsterdam, I had a client of mine. His name was Eugene Ubalajuro. And Eugene was from Rwanda originally. He worked for Heineken as a marketing manager. He's now very high up in that organization in the United States. Last summer, I went to Rwanda to go and build a playground in a school with an organization that does that kind of stuff. And 
I reached out to Eugene. I said, Eugene, I am going to your motherland. All right. Tell me what I need to do when I go there. He said, my wife, Pascal, you need to reach out to her wife, uh, her sister, sorry. So anyway, I go to Rwanda, I go to the genocide museum, I learn all about the genocide and the horrors a million people killed in a hundred days. And I get hold of uh, Eugene's wife, Pascal's sister. Anyway, two hours away from the capital, we drive up into the hillside and we find her there. Now, Eugene is uh, black, uh, Pascal is white, Pascal's sister is white. We're in the middle of nowhere and we move up onto this, essentially, I'd describe it as a bit of a plantation-looking house on this hillside and uh, Eugene's uh, wife's sister's there to greet us. We go there and I'm like, what are you doing out here? Like, we're in the middle of nowhere. She said, we'll have a business here. We do embroidery up here. I'm like, tell me more. So she shows me around at this embroidery and there's wash bags and hotel stuff, you know, tourist stuff in, in the nice hotels that these embroidered the, 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 the gorillas and all that kind of stuff from very nice done. And I'm, wow, this is all tourist stuff. She said, no, these ladies that all work here all do the embroidery for Chanel and Dior. <laughs> all of the embroidery is done here at this house for all of the, the leather goods. And so we produce all of the embroidery and we send it to Paris. And I'm like, how did that happen? She said, well, I'm from the fashion industry in Paris and I moved here 20 years ago for six months because I thought there was an opportunity to give this village an, op an opportunity to grow and evolve. And she stayed all those years later. Anyway, as she's showing me around the plantation house, I I'm looking at pictures on the wall. And she said, come over here, who's that? And I'm like, I don't know, who's that? She said, that's Eugene as a boy. And I'm like, why is Eugene's picture here? She said, this was his family's house. Eugene's whole family were murdered in the genocide. He was the only one left, but this is his family home before. And Eugene gave us the family home to set wow. up the organization in. Being up there and seeing what they'd done and the great work they were doing about how this community, all of the women had jobs and they were being paid a fair wage for what they yeah. did in that they were being treated with dignity and respect, just filled my heart, you know, with so much joy that this was taking place up in the middle of nowhere in Rwanda. And it was such a great example that, you know, we always think that the, 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 a lot of this stuff comes from the finest places. But the finest work was being done in Rwanda once these ladies were taught how to do it. And they didn't have formal university educations, you know. They were just given a chance. They were given some hope. And someone backed them and said, come on, we'll make this happen. Yeah. And so now all of these goods are on the, on the high streets and the, the designer stores of our Selfridges and our Harrods and whatnot, all from these ladies. That gave me a lot of hope. That yeah. gave me a great example of what can be done if you take the right approach. And someone just says, you know what, let's take a chance on this. Yeah. And let's build in some positivity and some optimism. That's a great story. Nah, nah. And, and, it, and it's about empowerment. And it's empowerment. That's the it's word. when you meet people that have been victims of, of modern slavery. We just need to design systems that empower them, because they they've got it. And and actually, what drives most modern slavery? You know, what what's the push? It's people wanting to advance themselves economically and to be able to support themselves. And it's, you know, we, we have a world where the divide between the developing and the developed world isn't getting smaller, it's getting wider. Mm -hmm. And 
You know, I see businesses trying to, they strain everything to get 0.001% more of market share. And I go, there's a whole world out there where you could get uh, an awful lot more than 0.001%. You just need to empower these people. And, and, and if we do that, then we make them resilient because then a trafficker comes along and goes, oh, I can get you this great job over here. And they go, why? Because <laughs> I've got a great job here and I can support my family and my kids are in school and we're developing. I've got a story. Come on then, tell us your this story. story. Let's, this finish, a, let's finish it with a great story. Come on then. This is, and, and you know, sometimes you meet people and, uh, and it just inspires you and it just changes the way that you think and go, okay, well, all right, there's a model. We can do that. I've just got to find people to do it. So I was at a conference actually in, um, in Qatar um, and we ended up talking, uh, ended up meeting, I mean, completely randomly some uh, investors around that and they, they said, oh, yeah, we, we, were, we were invited to go to Angola after the end of the Civil War to invest with the sole purposes of trying to stop, you know, the Civil War bursting back to life. Oh, okay, this is... Fair enough. I thought it was going to be a boring story if we did this. And they said, look, we, we looked around the world for, you know, what, what model would work around the world? Um, and they took the kibbutz model from Israel. Um, and, you know, because Angola has got quite an agrarian e economy. And so they would go to these small villages and put the kibbutz model in and, you know, that shared ownership model around that. Um, and they did it in conjunction with the government. So they said, look, your job as a government is to do the bits that you can do. So you, you must build the road to the village where it's that, and you must make sure that, you know, electricity and everything else is flowing, and then we'll, we'll do this. Um, and they did it, and they agreed it. And wherever they put this model, the economic growth was 15 times faster than anything else in Angola. And it stopped people fleeing to the cities because they thought that was the only place that you could create a job. It built the community there. It spurned all these other businesses around it that su supported it. And it created these resilient communities that were a real buttress to them falling back into a civil war. And I just thought, that is genius. That's the things that I, I want to do. That's the things that I want people to do, which is a bit like your story in Rwanda, which is where are these things that we can go around the globe where we can offer hope and we can offer choice and resilience to people because that's how we stop it. Mm. And then we need to tell these stories because then people go, oh, I get it. I live on this tiny blue planet in a vast universe and we are all intimately connected now. And so actually it is no longer six degrees of separation and I can't say I didn't know. And, you know, back to Wilberforce, and I know I was slightly disparaging of him. I'm not disparaging of him really. But he said, look, once you know about this, I once you know about modern slavery, you only have really two options. So if you've made it to the end of this podcast, you've only got two options. You either stick your head in the sand and pretend, oh, I don't know, or you know about it and then the awkward question is, so what are you going to do? Andrew Wallace, OVE. What a great way to finish the podcast. Thank you so much for coming to join us today. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. 